Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day right here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm your host Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Trevor Ratledge. Trevor is a specialist orthodontist and the principal of Rectory House Dental Practice in Guildford, Surrey. Trevor, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. No, that's great. Thank you for the the invite. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Trevor, for sure. And the purpose of this discussion is to really ascertain your take on leadership as a whole. And starting out with that, leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and different business and organisational leaders having to really feel their way through this uncharted territory. Tell me, for somebody working within dentistry, such as yourself, how has it been trying to navigate these last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge. Yes, well, I, you know, for all people, it's been extremely, extremely difficult since lockdown. Uh, it all happened so suddenly, um, no warning at all. So, um, obviously, for staff, patients, the practice as a whole, we we went into into complete lockdown immediately and weren't able to see patients face to face. That presented challenges in itself because patients have various problems, uh, dental abscesses, um, fractured, broken teeth. Um, So we've been running a sort of a triage system, giving um, telephone advice um, regarding painkillers, antibiotics, and so on, but have not been able to actually see patients face-to-face. But they found that fairly reassuring, and uh, fortunately, we've been able to deal with most of the, the patients that have contacted the practice without... Uh, too much difficulty, but we're obviously looking back to getting getting into work again. And um, I think we were told on the 28th of May that dental practices could open today. In actual fact, um, and uh, a number are doing so, but the logistics and problems of of getting the service up and running again so quickly um, has proved quite difficult, um, particularly with issues like uh, personal protective equipment and mm. creating compliance frameworks, et cetera, for the staff to work. Um, health and safety risks, et cetera, are obviously a big issue in a dental practice where we're dealing with patients, potentially COVID patients, um, face-to-face and close-up. Um, so there's a lot of preparatory work to be done um, to, to get the practice ready there. But there's also, I suppose, the, the psychological aspects of, of getting our staff ready for this as well, because they've, mm. they've been at home for 10 weeks. Um, we've manned the practice with uh, one receptionist going in and uh, taking phone calls, triaging patients. But other than that, um, staff have been at home, um, and they've got to come to terms with obviously coming back to work and facing the public, um, you know, having gone through a fairly traumatic experience themselves and seen all these um, very sad cases on the television, um, they now have to mentally prepare themselves to return to work um, and to come back you know, to a new norm. So, yeah, very challenging, I think, for us all uh, and very important for me as the sort of principal of the practice to, to um, unlock the wheels of the, of the practice machinery and, and, and gradually get things moving forward. So, very challenging, but I, I think that's the same for most businesses. 
Mm. It certainly is the same for most businesses, for sure. It's been an unprecedented crisis uh, for everybody um, involved. And I think you raise a few important points there in the sense that um, staff, of course, have to be empowered to be able to uh, return to work. And that's going to be very difficult, of course, with concerns over safety. And also from a leadership point of view, we always say that things such as clarity and transparency are incredibly important. And there's been a huge amount of debate as to whether the government has been clear enough on its guidelines for what COVID secure premises ought to be. And that's going to be especially relevant in the dentistry sector as well. And exactly what this new normal is going to really look like. And again, I mean, of course, I think there was a little bit of um, a cross wires um, when it was announced that dentists could reopen because prior to the uh, live announcements, I don't think the uh, the industry was really aware of it, were they? So do you think that... No, not, not at all. Do not, you... not at all. It was, no. you know, I think it was announced on one of the um, government daily briefings about the 28th of May. Um, we had no um, uh, information from the chief dental officer or the British Dental Association at all uh, that an announcement was going to be made. And... Um, Consequently, everybody was then starting to uh, to rush around to try and create guidelines and a framework. People have obviously been thinking about these things during the lockdown, but um, you know, really, there should have been much better guidance at the top of the profession, particularly from the chief dental officer, um, in giving us a much better framework prior to the government simply announcing this. And uh, you know, today, very few practices are actually open. Most are still in the preparation stage. And it's going to take two, three, four weeks before practices can safely return to seeing patients. Uh, the general public aren't aware of this. Our phone has been has been going non-stop since the, uh, the government announcement. Because um, there are obviously a lot of uh, the public requiring treatment and very keen to come in. But until we have safe premises that um, are safe for both patients and staff, and have good operating procedures in place, then um, we can't really see any patients. So this is all going to take time, you know, coupled with the fact that um, you know, getting hold of PPE, getting hold of suppliers, and changing the way we work, which is going to change dramatically. So from seeing perhaps 20 or 30 patients a day, we're probably going to see four or five patients in a day to start with. So the whole business model um, is going to change with significant financial implications as a result of that. And considering those implications just for a moment, what are the long-term effects of this on the dental industry likely to be? Because practice viability is going to be one issue. But And I think there was um, a recent British Dental Association survey which really lifted the lid on that as well. Yeah, it's going to be a major issue. Um, the survey showed that about, I think it was 70% of practices felt that they they could only maintain viability for a period of about three months. Um, going forward, um, obviously, uh, dentistry is a cash flow business. Patients come in and they pay for their treatment, and that's effectively what pays the staff and maintains the overhead. Like, rather like restaurants and other businesses, if you just suddenly cut off that income stream, it makes life very difficult. And, and the problem going forward is the fact that uh, we are going to see perhaps just those patients that have problems at the moment or patients who had ongoing care that was incomplete before the shutdown. Um, but there are going to be a limited number of patients coming through and the cost of PPE is going to be significant. If we're going to do a filling or a restoration, for instance, that's known as an aerosol-generating procedure, um, we need to use the uh, special filtration face masks 
which are very expensive, the sort of thing you see on uh, TV being worn in um, COVID uh, units. To try and practice dentistry like that is going to be very difficult, but the, the cost implications are very high. Once we've seen a patient, there needs to be a, a fallow period after the patient's been seen of up to 60 minutes. So if we see a patient and we do perhaps a filling for that patient um, to get them out of pain, um, the actual treatment is going to take perhaps two hours to complete, perhaps 45 minutes to an hour with the patient and a further hour of fallow time. So once you start to factor in those sorts of issues into your business model, you can see that um, it, it's going to be very difficult. And I think that's one of the big problems that the profession is going to face going forward is um, you know, how to deliver safe and effective care, but also deliver it um, uh, uh, with a financial model that's going to work. So uh, that is going to be a, a big, big issue. Big issue. It's going to take a lot of adaptability and flexibility to very important facets of leadership as a whole once again uh, during this period as we move into the uh, the new normal. But thus far, okay. Trevor, um, do you think that the industry has adapted well considering the lack of clarity around guidance and what's been expected of it thus far? I think it's, we have, actually. Uh, I think the profession is, is fantastic. The fact that we, we don't have a lot of leadership at the top. Um, Although saying that, people like the, the faculty of um, general dental practice, uh, the BDA, uh, organizations like CODE have very, very quickly come out with, with guidance um, to help the profession. Um, but I think lot, like all of these sort of situations, it's going to evolve very quickly, uh, adapt and change. And, and we as a profession are very adaptable. So, um, you know, a lot of clever minds thinking about this. And um, I very much hope that you know, in the, in, the, in the medium term, then um, we'll be able to get the profession back on its feet again. Um, but there are casualties at the moment. I've got a colleague who's just had two resignations, uh, his associate dentist, one who's approaching retirement, who's just said, well, there's no point, I don't really want to come back. The business model, obviously, to sort of generate an income is poor. And he's also got a younger associate, uh, a lady dentist, who, again, has just felt the risk of coming back is too great. Um, she's got children, etc., and decided she's going to step out of the profession for a little while and see what happens. And, you know, that's understandable. So those are the sort of issues that uh, the practices the profession are going to face. Um, and, uh, you know, it's going to be a difficult six to 12 months for us, but hopefully if we get over the, the uh, pandemic, if things start to improve, um, then we can return to a degree of normality, but it's certainly going to be very different from uh, the way we practiced previously, and patients will, will need to expect that, I think. Mm. It's going to be a very uncertain future um, for not only, of course, um, life as a whole, but uh, the profession, certainly. And uh, what do you actually yeah. hope to achieve over the uh, the next year and beyond, uh, Trevor, as we do move through the pandemic and hopefully emerge from the other side and then really begin to look to the long-term future and adapt to this new normal? Well, the primary aim is to keep the practice afloat, uh, to be quite honest. Um, ideally, without having to make any of my staff redundant, uh, I've got a number of staff, receptionists, nurses, etc. So it's got to be a, a financially viable vehicle. So the first thing is, uh, and I had a practice meeting this morning, uh, we're hoping to reopen on the 15th. Um, 
is to actually get the doors open, start to get some patients through, and see in the first three months if you know, see if we can struggle through. I think the furlough mechanism is certainly helping for, for private practices, and that's been um, going to be in place uh, ongoing. That's going to be very helpful. But the first thing is just to keep the practice afloat and the, and the, uh, the business going. Um, I think sort of six to 12 months' time, um, I very much hope that um, society will be returning to to the normal um, and you know, patients' attitudes, etc., to coming into the practice and receiving treatment, the routine dental care, like seeing hygienists coming for checkups, those sort of things will return and um, you know we can look forward to a bright future. Certainly within dentistry, the demand for our skills, our knowledge is, is, is always there and I, you know, we, we hope to be able to provide that ongoing. But I think it's going to be quite a rough, a, a rough and rocky ride for the first six to nine months for um, the profession. I think a number of practices will probably close. Uh, they won't be financially viable and um, new business models will definitely have to be sought in order to make the uh, the business profitable, really. Um, but ongoing, you know, the, the, the healthcare profession, there is always going to be demand for our needs, our services. So, um, you know, I, I think we obviously have a have a good future, but we need to get through the pandemic to start with. Exactly, and let's hope that the profession really does get to grips with that challenge and really bust um, through this um, difficult time um, as well and really break down those walls that are just stood there at the moment. Um, I've got to say, Trevor, from a listener's point of view, given how informative it's been today, I think it would actually be fantastic at some point over the uh, the next year to catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how we are adapting to the new normal and just see what stage the profession is at by that time. I think that would be fan- absolutely fantastic to do. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. Likewise, Trevor, it would be really informative, not just for the listeners, but also uh, for myself, because I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, this discussion and it's been a real pleasure having you on the air with us. And to be quite honest, I mean, it's a shame that we're just about out of time on the programme today because we could discuss it all afternoon, I'm sure. Plenty to chat through. Oh, there is exactly right. Um, in the meantime, um, however, uh, Trevor, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on for sure. Because as we both well know, we're certainly not out of the woods uh, with this yet, and it will be some time before we can even think about a return to any form of normality. Yeah, certainly. That was Trevor Ratledge speaking, specialist orthodontist and principal of Rectory House Dental Practice. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Sir Andrew is currently the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. And during his days as a player, Sir Andrew became one of only three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. He also became the England skipper with the second highest number of test victories under his belt in history. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan. Jonathan enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public 
and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because 
that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about 5 years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for 8 weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing, and uh, without doubt, the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that that just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for... for Absolutely, Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm-hmm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th- there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually 
the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... 
were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, 
Um, we learned a lot in that process, and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a a very inclusive. If you're thinking about, think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon (laughs) rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us last year. You could, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there. I mean to say. But whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f- for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably it was just I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much. Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot of them (laughs) wear red trousers anyway i think but um (laughs) no absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in 
in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney in Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I'm not sure we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.